Welcome to the Georgetown Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where we share sermons from our most recent worship services. To learn more about GBC, please visit us online at georgetownbaptist.org. If you will, join me in uh, reading Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So there are all kinds of ways in which you can measure time. There's all kinds of ways that you can mark the different chapters of your life or just use them as sort of check-in points to remember how different things could be. I mean, for, for some people, it's the places you lived. You think about the house that you came home to and the house that you're in now and, and sort of the, the ways that that marks the chapters of your life. Maybe for some, it's the jobs that you've had, if you've bounced around to several different jobs or the states you've lived in, any of those kinds of things, um, one of the things that marks it for me, and as sort of different checkpoints to see where I am at different points in my life, weirdly enough, are presidential elections. They happen every four years. They are, uh, you know, something that's pretty easy for me to remember. I've always sort of cared about um, politics and cared about history, and uh, the, the, so I'm curious for you, What's the very first presidential election that you actually remember as something that matters? Not just boring adults talking, but, hey, wait, this is a thing that, that actually matters. And uh, this is, anytime I date myself, it's going to divide, because there's people who hate uh, how old I am and people who hate how young I am, and it's okay. But, uh, so the very first one that I remember actually noticing and caring about was the 1992 election. So this was uh, H.W. Bush and Clinton and Ross Perot. And uh, I was um, 11 at the time, and let me tell you, you don't get to be as cool as I am now without starting out pretty cool. So as an 11-year-old, that's not the laugh point, but it's okay, it's all right. Um, As an 11-year-old, what I spent my time doing was watching live the vice presidential debate that year. So, uh, if you remember, Ross Perot's running mate was Admiral Jim Stockdale. And it wasn't the age of, uh, you know, widespread internet and social media where everybody could discover every possible thing about somebody else in an instant. And so when it came time for the opening remarks, it, it was actually pretty remarkable because when, when you as a speaker say something that everyone in the audience is thinking, there is this involuntary laugh that everybody in the audience gives of if you name the thing that they're all saying. So when it came time for Admiral Stockdale's opening remarks, he started off like this. Who am I? Why am I here? And everyone in the audience had that involuntary laugh because everyone in the room was thinking that. And unfortunately, that was the most exciting thing he said all night. But uh, it, it is an interesting question, and it's, 
it is especially interesting to, in today's world. Who am I and why am I here? Because even if you are the kind of person who thinks that, you know, things have drifted toward decay and things are heading in the wrong direction and culture isn't what it should be, you still swim in that culture with the rest of us. And the culture is individualism. The culture is you deciding the kind of reality that you want to create. And so in a way that earlier generations may not have even pondered the question like this, the question is, who am I and why am I here? And I, culture says, get to decide all of that. I get to decide if I just want to be here um, because I choose to be here and do what I want for my own desires and my own agenda and I don't care about anything else. That is a perfectly reasonable answer, culture tells us, because it's all about who am I and why am I here? But it's not just individuals that face that question. It's also groups. It's churches. Who are we? Why are we here? And lots of churches faced with that question, have answered it in all kinds of different ways. Some have gotten very political and believe that bringing the kingdom of God requires you to sort of weave yourself together with earthly candidates. Some go the exact opposite way and won't talk about it at all. Some don't sort of enter into politics. They talk about sort of certain practices, and you have to do this in this certain way and this certain kind of thing, and that is how they define it. But whether we want to or not, the question will remain for us in our culture of individualism where everyone is busy defining their own sort of self and, and nature of who they are. Who are we? And why are we here? This is the second week of our new series, and uh, it's a new series for our new year, and it's called The Work of the People. And so what, what we're talking about with that series is that first and foremost, God is the one who did the initial work. God is the one who came and who saved us or in, invited us to be saved even before we thought to turn back to God, even before we fully understood the brokenness of our sin and the desperation of our condition. God was making a way so that we could be reunited with him forever. God is the one who does the initial work. We, though, get to respond. In fact, not just get to respond, we have to respond. And so the, the series we're, through, we're going through is called The Work of the People. And the idea is, how are we going to respond to the great good news that God has already given to us? So the first week, we talked about this idea of, in our world where we are using and defining those individualism kind of traits in order for me to sort of build my kingdom. And I've decided I have this over here, and you are that over there, and there are people who want to tell us, because you're that over there and I'm this over here, you're an enemy, I need to build a wall, and I need to both be angry with you and frightened of you at the same time. That is a very profitable business model today. You are going to see a lot of that. And my question last week is, what if we decided to do something different? What if we decided not to play those games, not to be the purity police where we are constantly trying to crucify other people because they don't think things the way we think? What if instead we decided that we're going to unite under Christ? We are going to decide that you may be over there and clearly I'm right and you're wrong, and eventually you'll see that. But, you know, until that moment happens... 
What if we decided that Jesus is more important than these things? What if we decided that unifying together under Christ, aiming in the direction that God has called us to, could set a countercultural example, could be a one place where you and I know that we don't agree about everything, and yet we still call each other family and friend? What if that is what we chose to do? We unite under Christ. Now, all that is good. That is as it should be. But what I didn't have time last week to talk about is, what are we uniting to do? Because it's one thing to say, yes, I've decided that we should do that. We should unite. We should be together. But I haven't answered, what are we doing when we unite together? Well, um, Laura read it so well earlier, and that's what we are doing. What we are doing is the great commission. Now, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he has appeared to his disciples, he is giving them one last commission, one last order, one last mission that they are on. And I don't know about you, and I don't know your background and how you grew up, but I grew up in a Baptist, Baptist church, capital B Baptist church. We had red brick, we had white columns, we had the whole deal. And this this uh, great commission, I mean, we talked about this all the time, all the time, all the time. And if you, would have, if you would have asked me and told me, you know, tell me what the Great Commission is about, something interesting would have happened. And I don't, I don't know that this was the church's fault. This probably was my fault. I was probably too busy thinking about vice presidential debates to really get the full answer. But what happened is, you know, we read the Great Commission. If you just said, Patrick, what's the Great Commission about? I said, oh, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what I would have started with. And then I would have said, and it ends with this beautiful promise, because it does. Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. The age hasn't ended yet. Jesus is still with us. God is still with us. Emmanuel isn't just a Christmas thing that we do. God with us is here and now. Whatever you're facing, whatever trouble you're in, whatever worry seems too big for you, God is with you here and now. And we hold on to that promise. And that promise is beautiful and we love it. And that's what I just said. Go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, uh, if you checked your scorecard, I missed something right there in the middle. Because what Jesus actually says is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Got that. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's this part right here that I completely missed. Now, what made me feel a little better about this is reading uh, the author Dallas Willard. I'm not the only one who missed it. He's talked about in all of the churches that he visited and all the Christians he talked to, he saw a blind spot right here in that part where we're teaching everyone to obey everything that I've commanded you. In fact, he calls it the great omission from the great commission. This part gets left out. Why is that? Well, my hunch is this promise over here is beautiful and lovely and good and raises our spirits in difficult times. 
And this part over here for a church that has evangelistic zeal is a call and a charge to go and to serve and to tell the good news. But this part, this is messy. Have you ever tried to make somebody do something that you know is the right thing? Whether they are in your family or they're someone that you're in charge of. Have you ever tried to make a puppy do something you know is the right thing? Much less a human being, right? Just go outside. That's what you need to do. You know that it is messy and difficult. We are going to disagree about how best to do that. We are going to not see eye to eye. And the results are going to be a lot slower, a lot more challenging, a lot harder to measure. You can fill out a form with how many people you dunked. And you can rest assured and sleep well with the promise of Jesus. But how do we do this messy work in the middle? So what happened, what I got that was malformed, was a Christianity that Jesus tells me to go out and to dunk as many people as fast as I can to try and snatch them all out of hell. And then, oh, okay, I can breathe easy. We're all good. If you really want a bonus round and be a really, really, like, top-notch Christian, you can do some of this stuff. But as long as this is handled, you're good to go. And here's the problem, I think. I think when all we invite people to is for Jesus to be their Savior, and we neglect to invite them to the reality of Jesus being their Lord, what we get are shallow Christians who aren't built to last. Now, um, I don't know if you're familiar, uh, my grandmother had, and when she passed away, I got it, this small little porcelain Christmas tree with the little glass light bulbs of different colors. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about here? She had hand-painted this thing. And every year, it goes up in our bedroom. This is sort of the little Christmas tree. We got it on a timer. It's a whole deal. It's amazing. It's great. We love it every year. It's one of the things that we know, ah, Christmas is here. And throughout the different bedrooms that we've been in in our marriage, it's always found a place somewhere, and it is beautiful. Every year we pull it out, we just think, what a gift this is. And it has to be 60 or 70 years old and it is still going strong. So in the new house, we had higher ceilings uh, than we had in our, con in our townhouse before, and so we bought a new tree this year. Now, I don't know about you, but it's getting harder and harder for me, not just from places like Amazon, but even from regular stores, to figure out when I'm buying something, am I getting a piece of junk, or am I getting something that actually is worthwhile? So we bought a tree around Black Friday, from Walmart that was on a super duper discount. And friends, this is gonna shock you to your core, not high quality. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Release the pearls you have clutched, it is true. We open up the box, and can you call it an instruction manual when it's one page printed on one side? It's more a pamphlet or just a flyer. The instruction flyer, which, let me tell you, English was not its first language. I open it up, uh, well, the cool part of it, though, was when you opened it up, it did come with white gloves that you could use to fluff the tree. 
Sarah went, why do we have these? I went, I don't know. Is it because you're not supposed to touch the needles with your fingers? Is that what we're... Uh... So, so that's what made us look for the, uh, for the instruction flyer. And I pulled the instruction flyer out, and it had one instruction on it. Do not consume. <laughs> don't eat the tree. Sarah goes, were you thinking about eating the tree? I said, well, I am now, because they told me I can't. I mean, I, I didn't even know I wanted to do that before, but now, uh, this is going to shock you. The tree's not going to stick around with us. The tree is going back. Uh, but you think about, like, how many things in our world aren't built to last? How many things do you get, and as you're either assembling it or sort of taking it out of the box, you almost set a timer in your head of going, oh, this is, this isn't, this may not make it to summer, or what, you know, like this, you know, one person accidentally runs into this and it's going to fall apart, you know, that, that kind of thing. This, this is not a high-quality thing that is being put together. And I can't help but think about it. When I think about sort of the malformed kind of evangelism that somehow I got, that all that matters is we just dunk as many people as possible. I don't want a faith like that. The kind of faith that I want is I want a faith where we make disciples, yes, but we make disciples who make disciples. I want the kind of faith where when we pass on to the kids or the grandkids that are a part of our church, when we invite new people to come in and they experience Jesus for the first time through us, what I want them to experience and have is the kind of faith that takes root and hold in them so that years later, their lives are different and they can't help but share that good news themselves. That's the kind of thing that I want. That's the kind of discipleship that I want, is for us to be that kind of people, so that we are living and serving in that kind of way, so that it shakes and shapes not only our lives, but lives for years to come. When you think about the people who introduced you to faith, my guess is that for many of us, if not all of us in this room, it was some personal relationship, either some family, per family or some friend who invited you into faith. It probably wasn't some guy on a street corner with a bullhorn yelling at you about how wrong you were. It probably was somebody saying, there is something so beautiful and good to this. It has shaped my world and it can shape yours too. There's nothing I would love more. What if we became people who made disciples who made disciples? I am honored to be able to stand here and be preaching to you. There is a long line of people who have faithfully preached, not in this spot, because I think it was further back before they redid the organ, so I'm probably standing where someone was actually sitting before, which would have been strange, but... You think about the kinds of people who came before us and the kinds of people who decades ago were sitting in this space praying about a future they could never imagine and praying that God would continue to bless and touch 
and move this place, that it would be a place that would see Jesus even in a world they didn't recognize. Is that the kind of length and breadth of our prayer? That maybe instead of just measuring by how many people are sitting here, by how much money comes in, by how powerful we are, what if one of the measures that God uses is what does this look like 60 years from now? When all of us are past the point of caring, at least most of us are past the point of caring, and God is continuing to work and do something beautiful. What if that is how God defines it? And so what if the work of the people, what if the work of the people is we make disciples who make disciples? What if that's the thing that we are called to do? To make disciples who make disciples. That we see ourselves not in the immediate short term, but we see ourselves in the long term, planting seeds, cultivating beauty and growth and love, so that not only are we transformed, but God continues to transform the world through the work that we do. I am... so that, that Christmas tree, um, we found a spot in our new master bedroom that we put it up. Now, normally it's been uh, sort of in other areas, but this time the spot was right near my side of the bed over on my chest of drawers. And um, we set it up the, sort of the first weekend of December and very excited. We love it. Getting everything ready, not eating our Christmas tree, having a good time getting everything going. And uh, I notice as we get closer and closer to Christmas that I'm not sleeping well. And I say to Sarah, I, I don't know. And I don't know if you all have noticed, but you all party hard around here in December, a little bit harder than I'm used to partying. Um, you go to all kinds of things all the time. And so I had said to Sarah, I, I think what's happening is just going from thing to thing to thing. I am, uh, I'm just worn out. And she said, that, that could be it. And again, I, I will put a plug in. Um, it's, it's such a good idea to marry someone smarter than you are. Um, because she said that could be it. Or it could be the Christmas tree two feet away from your face at night that is bright all the way through the night. And I said, either one. <laughs> Maybe. Because it turns out this Christmas tree that is 60 or 70 years old is still shining so brightly in the darkness that it's disturbing my sleep. In a place in Georgetown, Kentucky, that my grandmother had never visited and never imagined it would wind up being. It is so bright that we had to move it away because the light was too much as we were trying to rest. The Christmas tree we're not supposed to eat isn't going to last another week in our house. And this has lasted 60 plus years. And Piper and Andy can fight over who gets it after we no longer care anymore about getting, having it ourselves. And Andy just said he wanted it. So, uh, and Piper's on the youth retreat, so I guess it's his. Good job, bud. Um, what kind of faith do we want? And what kind of faith do we want to pass on? 
Do we want the kind of faith that is so shallow it can't even last when difficulties come? Or do we want the kind of faith that still shines brightly in a world that my grandmother would have never envisioned, in a place my grandmother never was, but her faithfulness continues to be a blessing year after year after year? Because make no mistake, the storms are coming if they have already not come to your life. The pain will be there, but will your anchor Hold? Will your roots have strong enough purchase in the ground? Because what you are doing and how you are living is giving you the strength and the interwovenness with Jesus that you need so that no matter what happens, you are safe and you are good. That's the kind of faith that I want us to be building. That's the kind of faith that, that's the only kind of faith that matters. That's who God is calling us to be. The kind of people who shine in the darkness so brightly, others can't help but see Jesus. Who are drawn in and who love God so much that others can't help but experience that. Who are we? Why are we here? Well, we're called to love Christ. We're called to live as light. We're called to make disciples who make disciples. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for who you are and for what you do. We thank you for how you bless us and for the commission that you have given not just to go and to baptize people, but to also to teach them all of the goodness that you have for them and for us together. We praise you, we thank you, and we love you, God, for who you are and for what you do. Guide our steps, guide our thoughts, and guide our words as we seek to shine your light in the world. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.